0: preserve and protect your health by listening live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, Healthcare providers and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger.
1: Well, hello, listeners. I'm so glad to be here with you today, which is May 20th, 2015. We have a really good show today with my very special guest, Judy Flickinger. We're going to be talking about the end of life care for loved ones. And um, just to give you a little background, Judy is the author of the book Spirit Matters How to Remain Fully Alive with a Life Limiting Illness. Judy was a hospice nurse for 12 years of her 42 year. Professional life as a registered nurse, so she's going to be really interesting to talk to about how she transitioned into the hospice care arena. and you know during this time she was recognized she recognized actually that a healthy spirit would basically who we are as a a person could make the difference between a miserable death and a positive, meaningful end-of-life experience. And this could be both for the patients and their loved ones. So let's bring Judy onto our show now. Hello, Judy, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Denise. I always start my shows by asking my guests how did you get on the path to nursing
2: you you broke up a little bit, niece. How did I do what?
1: How did you get on the path to wanting to be a nurse?
2: Oh, I wanted to be an well actually, I wanted to be a physician when I was a little girl, and in my family back then, you either were a nurse if you were a girl, a beautician or a school teacher. So I I knew I wanted to be in medicine, so I went into nursing, and it has been a wonderful profession, but um, 26 years ago, when I first started doing hospice, I really found, you know, you you find where your gifts are, and you find Mm -hmm. what you really love, and I love hospice. It's really what I went into nursing for. Uh, to be a bedside nurse and to relieve unnecessary suffering. And we have so much unnecessary suffering going on. Uh, So it's been my mission to try to change that. And I'm still volunteering for hospice, so I've been involved in this for 26 years, and I do a lot of public speaking, trying to educate people. That's my goal, education. so that's why I'm happy to be with you today.
1: Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what our show's all about is, is uh-huh. uh, educating listeners. What are people saying about your book?
2: Well, as I told you before, I live in a community of 114,055 four hundred and fourteen thousand um fifty five and older people. And um, it has been so well received here. Uh, I've given oh, I've got 100 presentations since I moved here, and people are stopping me on the street that have been to um, one of my presentations. I don't know them, but they bought my book and they keep buying them because they send them to their kids. Saying this is you need to listen to this lady. this is what I need you to know about what I want my end of life wishes to be, so it's being sent all over the world, and it far has exceeded um uh, my expectations of what of how it would be received uh even young people um quickly, I had a one of my editors at the publishing company. Uh, was a 20 something. And um, she sent me an email while she was editing my book. And she said, Judy, I've never done this, sending one of my clients an email before. But she said, I want you to know something about me. She said, I'm young. And she said, my grandmother is dying in another state. And she said, I was very, very close to my grandma. But she said, I've never been around anyone it was dying before. So she said, I'm I'm sitting here editing your book and I'm learning and she said, Actually I've been crying because I know I need to go see my grandma and she said, I've been so afraid to do that because I didn't know what to what, what I could say to her. And she said, I just want you to know I booked reservations. I'm flying in to see my grandma. She's dying And now I know that I can be with her and just love her, and um, I'm not scared anymore. So, see, it's even affecting young people as well as older people. So it's just been a real joy for me how it's being received.
1: that's, That's really good to know. It really is. It's a difficult subject um, for for anybody that um is you know in other words if they're close to someone they love and they know that they're they have an illness that they're not going to recover from um, how would you recommend somebody deal with that type of situation um obviously well, first um, of all you've re- Yeah, in this book, but you know our listeners don't have the book in front of them, so why don't you kind of take us through the process?
2: Well, first of all, you have to understand how I define the human spirit, which is in my title, "Spirit Matters." The human spirit is who we are as a person inside of us. It's not the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about the human spirit. And when you can keep that part of a person alive and well, when their body, I mean, 100% of us are going to die, Denise. So the the emphasis is, I believe it, is when you can keep that spirit inside of them alive and well while they're going through that end-of-life experience. That's the piece that can make the total difference. Because what people don't realize, for 90% of us, we're going to die of a chronic, lingering illness. 90% of us will either have cancer or end-stage lung disease, heart disease, liver disease, uh, dementia, or neuromuscular diseases. So for 90% of us to know keeping that spirit, who we are, alive and well, a difference in a miserable death or a good death. And what people don't realize, you live with this dying time, as I call it. It can take weeks, months, or even years while you're going through that dying time. And it's how you treat your spirit and how it's being treated by the medical community and the family the loved ones, that to me is what matters most if there's no cure for the illness. I have told my children, mm-hmm. don't insist that I drink Ensure if I'm not going to get better and the Ensure or the, you know, the, the protein drinks or whatever, just feed me hot fudge Sundays. That's what will feed my spirit. Let me be who I want to be. Let me be where I want to be. If I am not going to get better, don't put me in a hospital, and especially not in intensive care, because they're going to they're going to have to do something to me. And when you're dying, you don't need anyone doing anything to you. You need people being with you. You need people making you comfortable and your family supported, and you supported, and you need to be clean. I mean, I would go into homes of hospice patients as the initial nurse that would see them, and some of them hadn't had baths for weeks. They were in pain. Um, They were dying in pain. I have a whole chapter in my book. No one should have to live dying in pain. We know how to manage end-of-life pain, and no one knows that as well as hospice. I mean, I train nurses in pain management. We have seen what works, and what people don't realize, Denise, is that physicians are given very little training in end-of-life care, so they don't know what they don't know. Uh, They are given a total of four to twenty hours in medical school on end of life care. They're taught how to cure. And that's wonderful if your condition is curable. But a hundred percent of us are going to die. So or and ninety percent of us are going through are going to go through an end of life experience that can last weeks, months or years. So it's very important to get educated what is possible, and very often, what I would see because that became the focus of my practice when I was actively working as a hospice nurse, was to get that person's spirit revived, and then they some of them went on vacations, some of them went back to work they they went back to living their life,
1: even how though did you it, do it?
2: by managing their pain, by getting the the, the support that they needed, by, mm-hmm. um, you know, what we found with hospice, and they're still finding it because I'm still involved. By the time someone becomes a hospice patient, very often their spirit is so depleted that they give up or they have nothing left to fight with. So when they're given really good, Comfort care very often their spirit revives itself, and they go on living their lives and it was It was always the best part of the day for me when I saw that spirit perk up again and and people wanted to go on living instead of wanting to die and It's possible we found in hospice. When you get someone on the program early enough, when you help people feel better, most of the time they will do better. The problem with hospice is we get patients too late. And I've been doing this for 26 years. It's still happening. We get people on for the last three or four days of their life. See, I Uh, don't even call that. I don't even call that hospice. I call no. that crisis management because I mm-hmm. did a lot of that crisis management. Hospice is so much more than crisis management. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I could share with one thing with your listeners, take sure, this, take this comment to the bank. Don't say to a physician, "Is it time for hospice for me or my loved one, whoever?" person is is living with a life-limiting illness because that's the wrong question the question should be would you be surprised if I or my loved one whoever the old person was were to die in the next six months and if the physician says no I wouldn't be surprised I'm telling you it's time for hospice and if they start doing better You can be discharged from hospice and brought back on a later date if it becomes necessary. But that's such an important statement because, as I said, physicians Mm -hmm. physicians don't know what they don't know.
1: No, no. We had um, a family member that died of lung cancer, and
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um, by the time it was discovered it had metastasized. Around the body. And her death was horrific because mm-hmm. she was from the house to the hospital and she never left the hospital. Mm-hmm. And they never ceased treating her.
2: See, that's, that to me is an abomination. Um, and it's well known that physicians, uh, it, it's, I've known this for years, they will continue treating their patients far longer than they will allow treatment on themselves, because mm-hmm. they know. I mean, that mm-hmm. physician knew that the, your mm-hmm. family member wasn't. It might have been the treatments that killed her.
1: Who knows? But see, yeah. we keep our patients. It was. It was just a horrible, horrible death. It is. Horrible. It's
2: horrible. And it's not, my point is, it's not necessary. It's not necessary. Uh, Um, We keep our patients at home or in a home-like setting. We do hospice in nursing homes and in assisted living. Shoot, We even had one patient, we did hospice in his car. He was a, a homeless man. And Aww. had an automobile. That's where he lived. Aww. And that's where he wanted to die.
1: So oh, we, my God. We would
2: visit him there. Yeah, uh. they didn't want to go to the hospital. And I don't mm-hmm. blame them. Yeah. Um, yeah. You lose control yeah. when you go to the hospital. If sure. you're in your home or a home like setting, you can yeah. maintain control.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So, is the overall message in, in your book basically about just keeping your life through any critical illness, or is there something more?
2: Denise, I'm having such a hard time. On, you're breaking up.
1: Okay. Um, is the uh, message in your book? mostly about keeping the spirit alive, or is there something you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, you know, I have different
2: lessons. My chapters are called Lessons. Um, One of the lessons is silence is part of the problem. You know, we don't want to talk about this, and it causes a lot of heartache because we don't talk about it. Um, I have another lesson, balancing the benefits, versus the burden, uh, obviously the, the burden of the treatment for your loved one and your family It certainly didn't balance the benefit, which she didn't get. You know, it, it didn't benefit, that treatment didn't benefit her at all. So I talk about that. I also have... Um, a chapter on what do you say to someone that's in in that life-limiting illness experience that will nurture their spirit? And what shouldn't you say that will take away from their spirit? You don't want to do that. And a lot of people say, well, I don't know what to say. That's why I wrote that chapter. And I did another lesson on, I call it my heroes. And that's the caregivers of the world. It's really hard being a caregiver if you have someone in your home, you know, that's dying. And so I I give kudos to them. And and part of my heroes, too, are the many, many volunteers that work for hospice. They don't make a cent, but they, they give their love and their time uh, they'll go in and stay with the patient while the while the loved one, whether it be a spouse or whoever is taking care of that patient, in the home regularly can go out and get a break, uh, maybe go to a movie or to dinner or get their hair done or whatever. Um, so these volunteers, they give a lot of their time and, and they're love. Oh,
1: that's so nice. That's so nice. What um, do you mean so by... Um, what do you mean by false hope does more harm than good?
2: False hope. Well, let's take an example of your loved one. Were was she given hope that she could go to the hospital and maybe get well or um, Yeah, I don't, you
1: longer? know, I don't know I don't know the interworkings of it because I I wasn't involved in it at all. Mhm. Um, you know, I would just go visit um I initially um tried but that, that part didn't work out so you know it ended well, up the way give, it did.
2: Yeah, let me give you an example of that. This was um in it was published by the Associated Press a couple years ago and the study showed that a cancer patient Given comfort care, palliative care, which is hospice or palliative care, the last three months of their life will live longer and better than someone that is given curative care, chemotherapy, radiation. So they're going to live longer without those treatments.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't.
1: Yeah, I know. It doesn't surprise me at all.
2: Yeah, so that, that's one example of that. Uh
1: huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Sometimes it's difficult for um, family members that are, you know, really close to to it, to um. I mean, people are kind of not It's really tough to accept that somebody's not going to make it. What do you What do you do in those situations?
2: Okay, you were breaking up again and I did not get your whole statement or your question. It's
1: it's very difficult for family members that are very close to someone that's um dying to to accept it. Uh a lot of times they can be in denial over it. How do you help well, them?
2: First of all, if someone's on hospice, you know that the condition is not curable number one, and we have a whole team of hospice workers, um, social workers, chaplains, um, nurses, nurses' aides, um, volunteers, uh, medical directors, physicians, and we all come into the home at one time or another, or maybe not all of us, maybe some of us, whatever is needed. But we don't shy away from talking about it. Um, Mm -hmm. I I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with, I mean, I've taken care of over 100 dying people, and I've had the conversation with so many of them by just saying, do you want to talk about what's happening to you, opening that door to allow Uh them to talk. I had a family that, the mom was dying in her bedroom, and the husband and the two daughters, every time I would go visit her, they would be in the kitchen. The daughters were both nurses, but they had never dealt with end of life. One was an orthopedic nurse, and one Uh was on another. Units, they didn't know about death and dying, and I would go in there, and the daughters would cry, and and then I would go back and visit the patient, and she would cry, and make me promise that I wouldn't tell them what was going on, and I'd go back to the kitchen with the three of them, and they would say, don't, don't tell mom what's going on, and finally I went back to her one day, and I said. You're dying. You know that. And you're back here all by yourself. Wouldn't you rather have your family with you? And she said, oh, Judy, I would, I would love that. I'm so lonely back here. And I'm
1: scared. Oh, my
2: gosh. And, and I said sure. to her, would you mind if I talked to them? And she said, I would be so happy if you would do that.
1: Oh, Even my though gosh. they were
2: all telling me not to talk to the other ones. So I went out to uh. the kitchen, had the conversation with them, and you can't imagine, Denise, all the healing that went on. I mean, that mom got a chance to talk to her daughters about life and and about how much she was going to miss them. And um, they weren't married yet, how much she was going to miss the, getting married and grandchildren, how much she loved them, and they shared... Um, experiences that only the, they had had with each other. And they laughed and they reminisced. Um, her daughters helped her pick out her clothes for when she died. Um, they loved, they had a good time together. And, the, and mm-hmm. the, she and her husband, he got a chance. I and mean, he said to me one day, how can I comfort my wife? And I said, how have you always comforted her? And he said, well, I, I would hold her. And I'd say, well, get in bed and hold her. And he'd say, Judy, she's dying. I'd say, so? You still can't get in bed wow. and hold her? And, and so he started doing that. I mean, what a what a wonderful healing experience for all of them. They they Yeah. And they uh, went through photo albums together. It's it's mm. a wonderful experience if it's done
1: right. Yeah, yeah. I wonder why my the husband could, was so afraid to to hold her. Oh, I've had I've to, told
2: more husbands to get into bed, and you know I always would say, "What would comfort her?" And so mm-hmm. many would say, "I just to hold her, put her in my arms." And I'd say, well, lay down next to her and hold her. And so many times they'd say, they, me, I didn't know I could do that. I mean, especially if we put a hospital bed in their home. I'd say, Get in there. Of course you can. What's keeping you It's your home?
1: No one can stop you from doing that. Yeah. Well, maybe it's it's just uh, it's a combination of things. It's probably fear fear of death. Um, well, sure. The one and fear of death for for yourself, you know. Um, Another p- important to, to do that to deal with it. just
2: come up in our nation recently, within the last year, and actually in the world. It's a new um, program called the Conversation Project, and you can get the it. The Conversation
1: online. Project.
2: Project, and you can uh-huh. get it online at the Conversation Project dot uh-huh. org and the uh-huh. importance of it is having the conversation with your loved ones and your physician before you get ill and it takes you through the process online on how to what to help you write down and get your get your thoughts clear on what would be acceptable for you. If and when you have a life-limiting illness, and
1: a uh-huh, good part uh-huh.
2: of it is, as you live your life, you can always change your mind and go back sure. online and change things. But it gives you a starting point. It gives you um, some way to talk to your physician as well, and it also it opens the door for the discussion, and it gives you a little tips on how do you open that door. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. one of the ways is, and I'm fine now, I really am, but I want to talk to you about what's important if I become ill, seriously mm-hmm. ill. I want mm-hmm. you to know what's important to me.
0: See, mm-hmm. I had this
2: conversation with my three children years ago, before the conversation project,
0: and my uh. eldest
2: son he didn't want to hear it. He didn't do death and dying. He just would, in fact, it was at Christmas time and they had all come home. I have three adult children and they had come home with their spouses. And I said, I want to talk to you about something that's important to me. And my son knew what it was because I had tried to have the conversation before with them. And he said, uh-huh. Mom, Mom, why are you doing this now? And he knew it wasn't going to be about birth control because they were all (laughs) adults and married. He Ah. knew what it was. And um, I said, David, get your brother and sister. Go sit down. Give me 15 minutes. It was Christmas time. And he said, Mom, you're going to ruin our Christmas. And I Ah. said, I'm still your mom. I want 15 minutes go sit down and listen to me I spelled it out in 15 minutes and my other son's wife spoke up and she's an oncology nurse and she said David you don't know what a gift your mother has just given you she said you wouldn't believe how many families get in fights on the oncology unit in the hall in the waiting room Sometimes even in the patient's room, because they all want something different. Some want uh,
1: treatment. Ah, yeah. You, mm-hmm. some
2: don't. Mm-hmm. This way, mm-hmm. you know what your mother wants. It's
1: a gift. Yeah, yeah. So they don't have to make the decisions.
2: That's right. Yeah. Because if you don't make the decisions, someone else will make it for you, and it might mm-hmm. not be what you wanted. And I'm very yeah. clear
1: what's acceptable to me. I've seen too much, Denise. I bet you have. I bet you have. Listeners, if you're just tuning in, we're we're talking with Judy Flickinger about the end-of-life care for loved ones, and she's also the author of the book Spits Matters, How to Remain Free Alive, the Life-Limiting home. I suppose... Thing um, about goes along with writing a will. I mean, you basically could put it into to your will as well, correct? Well, you can do.
2: There's two different types of will. Wills. One is for financial matters, and I'm not talking at all about that. And the other is called a living will. That's about your health care wishes at the end of life. And then you can also do a form called durable power of attorney for health care. And that can vary from state to state. So it's a Mm -hmm. legal document, but you have to make sure it follows the regulations in the state that you live in. Um, But what we have found in hospice, those two documents are very important, but it has to be accompanied by the conversation, because okay. as I said, um, things can get mixed up, and mm-hmm. if they don't know your particular wishes and everyone that's going to be making decisions, because those those documents can be tweaked a little bit, or can be um, not completely accepted by a physician, so oh. that. The conversation, I mean, I've seen patients where the physician just would not accept what was in that document. So, oh, goodness. Um, yes. Um, in fact, that happened in my own family. Uh, my, I took care of my father towards the end of his life. And my one nephew is an orthopedic surgeon, actually, in California. And, oh, um he kept talking to my dad's physician, and I had my dad with me in Ohio at the time, and I was a hospice nurse. And mm-hmm. my my nephew kept talking to my dad's physician that he wanted all aggressive treatments to continue. And I kept telling my father's physician I had durable power of attorney for him, and my dad couldn't speak for himself anymore, and I wanted I wanted all the aggressive treatments to stop, and he was listening to my nephew. And it went on for a few days, and I finally laid down the law. And I said, if you continue this, I'm going to have to get an attorney because this is not Mm -hmm. what my father wanted. And I Mm -hmm. have the illegal um, ability to make this decision. My nephew doesn't. He didn't know anything. It, my nephew didn't know the first thing about death and dying, and he hadn't come mm-hmm. to see my dad. He didn't know the torture my dad was going through. Um, he was uncomfortable. And, you know, after I did that, and I had my, doc, my dad on hospice, and it's funny thing, funny story. I had him at home in a hospital bed, and he was, Semi-comatose, so you know I could stir him a little bit. But my dad used to play jazz music; he was a pianist. So I and he loved Dixieland. So I started playing Dixieland. Uh, some of his CDs for him in his bedroom, and I walked in one day, and I mean he was so out of it, Denise. He had his fingers up and he was conducting the, Dix, the, the Dixieland. And I thought, oh my yeah, gosh, that is
1: really cool, you Isn't know? is that something? Yeah. Wow. These things that yeah. are possible uh-huh. We, don't, uh-huh. we don't want to
2: lose the opportunity. I mean, my dad, they kept giving him IV fluids, and he was drowning in them. I spent one whole night before I laid down the law, I spent one whole night at his bedside, suctioning him because they were overloading him with fluids. And he couldn't he couldn't tolerate them. I mean, his body was shutting down. And I suctioned him all night, and it just broke my heart. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if any of your listeners has ever been suctioned, but it's not a pleasant experience. And I spent that whole night so I could get a hospice order for him. And I had to do it by threatening to get an attorney.
1: Gee. Well, lucky he had you. Well, Sure.
2: you know, I, I'm a I'm a crusader for the death and dying people. I'm so passionate about this. And mm-hmm. I hope you'll mm-hmm. read my book. I, I, I almost call it a personal trainer for death and dying <laughs> because we've never done it before. Uh, you know? true.
1: It's true. And, it isn't um, something people like to talk about, that's for sure. No.
2: No, that's why this conversation project is so very important. And it's mm-hmm. free. You can mm-hmm. go online, pull it up, and you can fill out the questionnaire. I think it's five or six pages. You can do that right online and then go back yeah, and, and that's
1: change if you and want. that's um and that's uh, conversationproject.org correct? Correct. Okay. Correct. Okay. And right. I want
2: also your listeners okay. to know I do have a website and it is www.spiritmattersauthor.com. Okay. spirit
1: And then, where can um, our listeners purchase your book? Excuse me. Where can the listeners purchase your book?
2: Oh, it's available in Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or from my publisher, Tate Publishing and Enterprises. Um, And it's also available in an audio book.
1: Oh, wonderful! That's really wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I know um, I've become um, a lot more enlightened relative to this very very serious subject, and um, I think it's particularly helpful for people to know that um, they can get a durable power of attorney for health care, get that set up um along with, you know, their living will. So they can another thing basically...
2: I want them to know about that. Many people uh-huh. take those documents to a lawyer to have them witnessed. You don't need to do that. You don't need to spend that money. You can get okay. the doc the two documents online, download them, or most hospitals will supply them. And then you all you need are two people to witness it that are not related to you, and it becomes a legal document.
1: Great. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we run out of time? No, I think I've said it all. I
2: just really appreciate (laughs) the time that you've given me, to do what I love to do, and that's to educate. I hope your listeners have learned something. I hope mm-hmm. that that they will go online to the Conversation Project, and I mean, my book is only twelve ninety nine, and it's really worth it. Um, I hope they'll read my book. If not, at least maybe they've learned something, and that's my goal. I'm not going to get rich with this Absolutely. book. Me.
1: No, no. But it's, it's a I word mean, of
2: mouth book.
1: Of course uh, it is. Yes. Of course it is. And you're you're so kind. You have such a kind heart. Um, Thank you. To give of your to give of yourself and your time and passion. Yes. I believe that people that are, are very very fortunate to have had the opportunity.
2: Thank you and for with that,
1: me the yeah. And with that, um, I'd like to say goodbye and continue your your very important work. And thank, thank you so much for joining. Us. I'm planning on
2: doing that till the day I shut my own eyes. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> take, take care. You. <laughs> goodbye, <laughs> everyone.
1: Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Tune in again next Wednesday. We'll have another informative and enlightening show for you. Until then, be well. Bye-bye.
0: We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have. And follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit gotcancernowwhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What?